welcome everybody. This is our final event for 2020. It's part of the Heritage Cafe series. I'm Lauren Hukamer. I'm the Assistant Historic Preservation Officer with the City of Tacoma and I'm excited to introduce you to uh, Jackie and let's see I've got her bio here. Um, Jackie Peterson is an independent museum consultant. Uh, she focuses on exhibit development, curation, and writing for history museums and historic sites. Um, she is going to be talking about storytelling um, through highlighting the experience and lives of African Americans in Washington State. So pretty excited to hear her work. Um, before I introduce let her, um, we also have Jay on board. Jay is um, the Outreach Director for the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. She is also on the board for Historic Tacoma and she is also a commissioner for the Tacoma Landmarks Commissioner. So glad to have her part as part of the discussion. And then we have uh, Steven, who is sort of a new face, at least to me. Um, he is now on the board of Historic Tacoma and he has been on the Seattle Landmarks Commission. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And how long have you been on the board? That's that's been you, I think. Oh, I was. I, I haven't been for a little bit, but I was on the board for about two years. Uh, it's been about a year or so since I've uh, left the board. But yeah, the two years is uh, 2018 to or 2017 to 2019. Awesome. Great. Well, glad to have you. Um, let's see. This series is sponsored by Historic Tacoma and Tacoma Historical Society and Tacoma Creates. So you can visit all of those Facebooks and web pages for more events and more um, topics on Tacoma's history and local history and heritage, if you're interested. Um, you can also enter questions in the Q&A if you're on Zoom, and then um, just type them into Facebook if you're on Facebook. This will also be posted later on YouTube. Um, so a little bit of background. Um, in January of 2020, the National Register of Historic Places had more than 95,000 sites listed. And of those, only 2% focused on the experience of Black Americans. Um, so that's kind of just a travesty um, that I think, and it's, I think, something that historic preservation is now starting to look at. Like, wait a minute, we've been telling one narrative pretty dominantly <laughs> for the past you know, few hundred years, and we've been ignoring the stories of many other people um, and many other different types of sites. So. I will uh, turn this over to Jackie. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, everyone out there for joining us this evening. Thank you to Historic Tacoma uh, for inviting me um, to speak to you all this evening. Uh, Lauren, you stole my statistic. I was going to start my start off with that. Um, but I just uh, earlier this year heard that myself and what a, what a heartbreaking uh, reality. Um, and I think that you are correct in that there is a lot more that folks can do uh, both as individuals and uh, as an or organizations. And um, I hope that what I am gonna share with you this evening will be helpful. Uh, so to be clear, I come to you all as a museum professional. Uh, Lauren alluded to that a little bit, but uh, I have been working in the museum field for around about 13 years. And I come from the design side. So I work in uh, exhibition development, exhibition design, and that sort of behind the scenes side of it. 
Uh, I also do independent curatorial work. So uh, museums invite me in to guest curate exhibitions, uh, help them with things like redoing their permanent exhibitions, uh, lots of fun work like that. So tonight I wanted to share with you a little bit about some of the processes I've developed in working with uh, museums and developing exhibitions. So I'm gonna share my screen. Hopefully everyone can see that. Um, so I, I called this a practice because doing inclusion work, doing any kind of work where you're looking to sort of change up the, the narrative of where you're coming from, it, it work that where you're looking to invite new or different communities or different voices to the table. It's not something that you can do once and wash your hands of it and say, you know what, that was great. Uh, I'm done, we've done the job, we can tick the box, we can move on. Uh, it's a practice. So practice makes better, not perfect. Uh, it's a muscle that you have to keep flexing, you have to keep conditioning for it to work the way that you want it to. Um, so whether just like you're learning uh, to play an instrument or you're learning a sport, right, you have to keep doing it in order to get better. So what kind of approach or process am I working with? Typically when I am approached by a museum to do an exhibition either on a specific topic or uh, just a, sort of a blank canvas, we wanna do an exhibit about X. Um, most of my work usually comes through uh, working, working with an inclusion lens, an inclusive lens. And what do I mean by that? So for me, inclusion is about what's, what's missing. Um, that's generally the place where I start. Um, so what I have done is develop a set of guiding questions. How am I approaching this work? How am I investigating the topic? Uh, understanding the context, um, particularly around historic preservation, museums, museum exhibitions. There's a, there's a history there, there's a backstory. So understanding that context is really important because it allows me as an individual to understand what kinds of circumstances I'm walking into, what kinds of um, stories have been historically valued, what kinds of stories have been excluded, where, where am I uh, landing in the middle of uh, this, this process? Um, recognizing capacity, biases, and or privilege. So what am I bringing to the table as an individual? As I mentioned, I'm a consultant, so that generally means that people are hiring me from the outside. Uh, I'm coming into a museum that I often don't have necessarily a previous relationship with. Uh, so it behooves me to understand what am I as an individual bringing to the table from my past experiences? Uh, what skill sets, what capacity do I have, right? A lot of this work is recognizing what we have the capacity to do. We can't do everything. I know at times the world feels like it's on fire and we have to just put them all out at the same time, but sometimes we have to prioritize what we can address and act on based on what we can realistically accomplish. And then having flexibility. So not being too rigid in your process, not being too rigid in your schedule, 
but leaving some space to pivot. I think 2020 has taught us all. We've probably heard the word pivot, it's being beaten to death, <laughs> but uh, we have to leave space so that sometimes things come up as we're working through uh, an exhibit topic, we're researching. Um, sometimes we have to think about, okay, maybe down the line, something's gonna pop up that's gonna be really awesome. Or maybe something's not gonna quite work the way we thought it was gonna work. So how do we leave some flexibility uh, in order to embrace that? So the kind of case study I wanna to talk to you all about tonight is the exhibition, The Atomic Frontier, Black Life at Hanford that I worked on in conjunction with the Northwest African-American Museum here in Seattle. So this exhibit was up at the museum from November of 2015 through about May of 2016. Uh, and I was brought into the process a little bit after the museum had started to think about the exhibition. Uh, so there was some, some balls that were already in the air, some balls that are already rolling, um, but still early enough in the process that there was an opportunity to really take the story and shape it in a really interesting way. So some of the guiding questions that I developed as I got involved with this exhibition were, what do people generally understand about the history of Hanford and the Manhattan Project? So what's the landscape of what, what stories have been told about Hanford? What stories have been told about who was working on the Manhattan Project? What came out of the Manhattan Project? Whose stories or experiences were missing? Um, one of the sort of main questions that I like to start with, generally speaking, is who's, who's not here? So once I understand what's, at, what's already out there, um, it will help me really pinpoint, well, who's missing? Um, and sometimes that's not, apparent at the beginning, sometimes it is. Um, why were these stories or experiences excluded? So that go again goes back to understanding context, um, particularly in Eastern Washington, so up until the last decade, a very uh, predominantly white section of the, the state, um, not really a lot of value placed on the participation or the experience uh, of people who really helped build uh, Hanford. And then how will this exhibition help reach, help people reach a greater understanding of this historic moment? So what is the opportunity here in identifying some of these stories that were left out, some of these experiences that were left out? What can we do with that? How do we help people fill out their understanding of this story and, and why after understanding these different experiences, how will that help people get a better understanding of what this really means, what this particular community contributed and why that was important. Capacity, bias and privilege. So thinking about what am I bringing to the table and what can I realistically accomplish? So one thing I'm very conscious of is that I'm an East Coaster. I was born and raised in New Jersey uh, so I'm an outsider. I'm not originally from Washington State. I have not previously lived on the West Coast before moving here. Uh, and I was very unfamiliar with Eastern Washington specifically. So that was a moment of uh, humility for me, right? Understanding that these are not my stories, um, but there's a way that I can use my skills in service of, of telling those stories and, and bringing that community uh, to the forefront in the process of developing that, that story. 
I do, however, have a very strong understanding of some of the larger themes in American and Black history that relate to the story of Hanford. So thinking about the Great Migration, uh, understanding World War II and its impact on African Americans socially and economically. And again, I am an exhibit developer, I'm a writer. Uh, several of the projects I've worked on before this point uh, involved community listening and community engagement. So this is where, this is what I'm bringing to the table. This is some of both positive and negative uh, where I'm at in this, in the mix. Understanding context. So what led up to creating this exhibition? One of the questions that came up quite a bit was why had an, ex an exhibition of this scale never been mounted before at a major museum in Washington? Um, what resources are currently available? So this was one of my biggest uh, research challenges um, or opportunities, as I like to say, uh, who's who's written about African-Americans working at Hanford? Who, who has any collections related to the African-American community in the Tri-Cities? Um, one of the things I came up against was that there were official records, but lots of the folks weren't named. So the image you see here is actually from the Department of Energy. They had a pretty, pretty reasonably sized archive of images uh, many of them of African-American folks, but none of them, none of those folks have names. So became difficult to sort of track down some of those individual stories. Uh, and a large number of folks left after the war ended because there weren't really any jobs. And so there's a really small community of black folks out in uh, the Tri-Cities um, who have some, who are the keepers of some of these memories and some of these stories, but not all. So putting it all together, how did I develop a vision for this exhibition? So as I mentioned, recognizing that I had a limited capacity, that the museum, the Northwest African American Museum had a limited capacity, that meant we had to make some priorities, right? So recognizing that this wasn't intended to be an all-encompassing exhibition about the African American experience at Hanford. Uh, we had to really make some strategic priorities about what we were going to do. Some of that was based on research and the available archive of materials we had to work with. And some of that was based on some of the conversations that we had with uh, the African-American community out in Pasco specifically. Um, some of them were descendants of folks who worked at Hanford. So a lot of that was dictated by what was available. So we came up with some uh, priorities for the exhibition, which were to highlight the, some of the unique stories or lesser known voices in the story of Hanford. So much of what is out there about Hanford and the Manhattan Project in general focuses on it as this feat of engineering, uh, a lot of brain trusty uh, work being done by predominantly white men. Um, so how do we talk about Hanford in a very different way? The next priority was shedding light on some of the nuance and providing multiple perspectives and experiences. So while there were thousands of African-Americans who came to Hanford to help build the nuclear reactor facilities and a lot of the auxiliary buildings there that were needed to make Hanford function, they didn't all have the same experience. Uh, they didn't all come from the same place. Uh, and they didn't all experience Hanford in the same way. So it was really valuable for us to think about how do we really parse that out? How do we really 
lift up some of these different experiences and help people recognize that uh, every black person who worked at Hanford didn't experience racism. They didn't experience racism in the same way. Some people enjoyed their time at Hanford, some people didn't. So thinking about how we really tease that out and make that very clear and accessible to uh, visitors. And the third thing was to provide historical context and things that were surprising or even sometimes contradictory about the circumstances around how uh, Hanford was built and how uh, people were able to really participate in this massive nuclear project. And the image that you're looking at is uh, the train station in Pasco, Washington, which was the, the main train depot at that time, uh, lining and the US military lining up uh, Japanese Americans to be taken to internment camps uh, outside of the state. And so interestingly, while the government was very actively recruiting African-Americans from the South to come to Washington state to work on this project, uh, they were essentially moving people of Japanese ancestry and Japanese Americans out because they were being considered a threat. So making sure people understand some of these larger things that were happening in the background. So staying flexible. One of the high, real highlights of working on this exhibition was a lesson in being flexible because sometimes some things pop up that you never would have imagined and it ends up being a really, really beautiful thing. Um, I had the chance connection of uh, one of the, one of NAM's community members and, and supporters and um, has helped NAM with a lot of programming over the years, happened to have a connection to a woman whose mother worked at Hanford. And as I was doing the research, there was this nagging thing that there weren't really a lot of stories about women and specifically women who worked directly at Hanford. So there were several oral histories that we were able to share of uh, the spouses of some of the men who worked at Hanford, but no one who, no women specifically who worked at Hanford. Um, and I was by chance connected to this woman um, in the image of the two ladies, the woman on the uh, left-hand side in the blue shirt, uh, Ben Esther Fields, her mother uh, worked at Hanford as, uh, as waitstaff in uh, the mess halls and at the, the segregated bar. And coincidentally, one of her best friends, the, the woman who's wearing the yellow shirt standing next to her, Diana Bird, her mother also worked at Hanford and the two mothers were friends. Uh, ben Esther's mother left Hanford a little bit before Diana's mother, but they both ended up in Seattle. They remain friends. Their, subsequently, their families are still quite close. Um, but the Washington State History Museum had uh, this gem of an item in their collection, which I found, and they gratefully loaned to the museum for this exhibition. And it was a church register, which you'll see in the, it's a, uh, a little bit blurry, but anyway, I apologize for that. Um, in the, the case there, it's a church register and it was an African-American church at Hanford and it lists all of the things that the church was responsible for. So the church had a little school. So there are photos of school children. 
uh, some of the church activities. But in the back of this, this little booklet was uh, a list of all of the, the congregation. And it just so happened that uh, Diana's mother's name was listed in this directory. And this image of these, of these two ladies, Ben Esther and Diana was taken uh, at the museum opening. And I saved that little tidbit for opening and that was kind of a nice surprise to share with Diana um, and showing her her mother's name in that, that church roster. And uh, that was something I hadn't expected, I hadn't planned for it, but um, about half, well, maybe three quarters of the way through the development process of this exhibition, um, this introduction was made. I had the opportunity to interview both of these women about their uh, mother's experiences, their mother's stories, and I was able to include them in the exhibition. Uh, and kind of a longer term um, thing that came out of that was that both uh, Ben Esther and Diana's families became members of the museum. They've become very um, vocal supporters of the museum. Uh, they brought their whole families. So there were tiny babies who were at this exhibition, you know, getting to experience uh, the stories of their, their ancestors. So that was a really beautiful, joyful thing. Uh, I didn't plan for it. Uh, I had a hunch that it was out there. Um, and I think maybe that, that putting that energy out into the universe came back to me in a really uh, wonderful way. But had I or the, the museum been very rigid in our process and rigid in our thinking and saying to ourselves, okay, we've got this deadline, we can't change things. Um, we wouldn't have had this, this really wonderful opportunity. So making sure that you allow space for things to kind of crop up or change or shift, um, that flexibility will often give you an opportunity to do some really wonderful things. So this was one of the first exhibitions that I did as an independent consultant. Um, I've only been an independent consultant for about six-ish years. So I thought to myself, maybe it would be helpful to kind of think about this in all of, and rolling this out in a lot of the work that I do moving forward because it was a helpful process to me. I think it created a really, a rich exhibition, uh, one that seemed to have resonated with a lot of folks. Uh, particularly because the more I talked to people about it, the more that I learned that Hanford uh, is an origin story for quite a few Washingtonians, regardless of race, uh, black, white. Uh, a lot of folks came to Washington through working at Hanford, whether it was during the World War II period or during the Cold War period, uh, which was really fascinating to hear. Um, but I thought it would be helpful, even just for myself, to document what I, what I went through and thinking about what served me, what didn't serve me and what I could continue to do moving forward. So one of the things that I find really helpful is identifying what are we doing here? Um, what problems are we trying to solve or what gaps need to be filled? Or as I like to say, what opportunities exist? Um, sometimes things aren't necessarily a problem, but maybe they're just an opportunity to try something new, to do something different, to reach different people, to tell different kinds of stories. And I, I bolded asterisk uh, answering what is your why. Um, and I think this is really important because sometimes when we undertake big, bold projects, 
we forget to stop and really evaluate why we're doing this. So you're potentially going to get pushback, you're gonna get criticism, you're gonna get questions. And I think it's important to have a very solid grounding in why you're doing something because it makes, it makes for a more um, authentic outcome and product, whatever it is that you're working on. Um, you can answer those questions, those criticisms from a place of authenticity and from a place of that's being very grounded in um, something real and tangible. Define, getting on the same page. So doing things like defining your terms, creating shared language uh, is really important for creating clarity and removing assumptions. So whether you're an individual who's being brought in from the outside or whether you are part of a larger organization, it's really important, I think, to have some shared language, some shared terms. So understanding what are your organizational or individual values? What does inclusion mean to you? So I think people have a tendency to default to race as thinking about inclusion, but it's really a significantly broader category than that. So inclusion is everything from accessibility to uh, gender identity to sexual orientation uh, and beyond. So thinking about what does that look like for your institution, it's not gonna be the same as someone else's institution or organization, uh, particularly if you're a public facing or public serving organization. I think it's important to think about who your organization primarily serves or doesn't serve. Um, there are a lot of ways to think about inclusion, but what does it specifically look like for your organization? And then what does success look like for me um, or for my organization? So it might mean hiring 25% more um, people of color for your organization. It might look like doing programs for specific communities. Whatever that is, it's important to define what that is for you. Interrogate, AKA question everything. Um, this is one of my favorites. Uh, I think so many times we take things for granted we show up in the middle of a process and in, we get hired into an organization and we don't quite know where things have been, how we got to where we are. Um, so I think there's value in starting to ask some questions um, and that will help guide more effective solutions. It will help guide the kinds of relationships maybe you need to start building. Um, so asking questions like, how did we get here? What circumstances led us to this moment? Be they global or local? Um, and for institutions or organizations, what's our origin story, right? Every, every museum, historic preservation office, government agency started somewhere. Um, where do our practices and policies that we kind of take for granted, where do those come from? Who shaped them? Who developed them? And are any of those things still working for us? Maybe some of them are, maybe some of them aren't. Um, who's missing? What's missing? What are the gaps? So identifying, you know, where, again, where we have opportunities to expand, to bring people in, to bring in other perspectives or voices. Then create a plan. What's your roadmap? So as a writer, I sort of use very, the very 
familiar who, what, when, where, why, how. Um, but I think these are still helpful questions in thinking about how to plan what you're going to do. So who are the people at your table? Is there someone in your organization that has that experience or do you need to look at for outside help? Uh, whose perspectives are missing? Whose perspectives do you want um, or do you need? Uh, what, what are your goals? What are you hoping to accomplish? So these don't always have to be measurable. Ideally, some of them are, uh, but they can also be qualitative, right? You can say, I wanna hire X number of people, but I can, I can also say, well, I want to get more positive, uh, I wanna hear more positive feedback about our organization in the community. Um, when, how long do I wanna spend working towards this goal? What is the timeline? Um, is there some flexibility built into that timeline so that we can adjust or pivot if we need to? Um, what is our process to get there? Uh, what tools or skills or structures do we need to help us get there? And then how are we gonna communicate about what we're undertaking? Uh, and the where, what is, where are we starting? What are we gonna target? So this could be a physical place if we're talking about um, adding physical buildings or spaces to historic registers or are they structural? For example, if you're a museum, are you looking to do uh, more programs or exhibitions uh, in, in collaboration with certain communities or individuals? And then once you have a plan, implement. So try it out, fail, adjust, try again. Uh, I love the phrase planning to fail, uh, right? Because no going into this, you're probably gonna do something wrong. You're probably, something's not gonna go as planned. Uh, there's that kind of, a, that funny meme that's like, you know, here's what I think my life is going to be like, straight line, and then here's what actually happens, and it does this. Um, so include opportunities for feedback and stay open to shifting your strategy. Um, work towards building trust. So this is one that I find often happens, particularly in, the museum field and in the exhibition field is that a lot of times some of that contextual information is that somewhere along the line, some trust has been broken. So how, how can this process or this plan include uh, some work around repairing or rebuilding that trust and rebuilding those, those relationships? Being transparent, this is also one of my favorites and one that I think a lot of people find very scary, but I think it's super helpful, particularly because whether you understand it or realize it or not, there are people who are gonna be watching, there are people who are paying attention. Uh, and I think it's helpful when people are very open and honest about why they're undertaking any kind of inclusion process or inclusion work or going in a completely different direction for a museum that's doing different kinds of exhibitions. Um, be very open and very transparent about that, even when something goes wrong. Um, because this is, again, another way to build trust and it's another way to help other people, um, whether you realize it or not. Um, listen, reflect, and then listen some more. Uh, a lot of, again, going back to building trust and building relationships, a lot of it is about listening. And particularly if you are a person who is coming from um, 
dominant cultural institution or uh, a very white able-bodied agency, um, a lot of times things happen without listening to the people who will most be impacted by your work. And so sometimes just coming to the table and listening and not really saying a whole lot um, is a really helpful and useful first step. And then lastly, stay humble. Know when to ask for help or advice and use those moments to expand your circle or invite people in. Um, none of us are experts at anything. Uh, and I think there's a lot of value, particularly around when you're working to bring in new voices or work with different communities. Um, if there's a gap in some expertise or um, something that you need to do, think about how you can use that as an opportunity to bring people in. And the last thing uh, I will leave you with is just keep going. Lather, rinse, repeat. Go, once you've done that, start at the beginning. Go back to identifying, okay, we went through this process. What worked, what didn't? Um, and then, you know, keep going because even if it didn't work, there's always an opportunity to do something different. There's always an opportunity to do something better. And again, there's, this is anytime something, uh, something works or something doesn't work, uh, there's always an opportunity to get some feedback. There's always an opportunity to invite people in for a conversation uh, and expand the perspectives that you have available to you because we all have blind spots and sometimes there are things that we overlook, but that if we're open and willing to hear feedback, there are things, information that we can get that will be super helpful. So that's all I have. Thank you so much, Jackie. That was really good, a lot of good takeaways. Um, I'm gonna invite the panel back. And if you also have a slide or wanna post your contact information for follow-up, can go ahead and do that. Um, I'll start reading the questions to you soon, but um, I really liked your points about, um, you know, staying flexible, capacity. I think a lot of times people are afraid, like if I can't tell the whole story, I'm not gonna tell any of the story because I'm uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just being able to narrow it down and, and focus in on one part of it, say you can tell that story. You know, you don't have to tell the black American experience. <laughs> This foot is my baby that's on my shoulder that just showed up. <laughs> Zimbabwean foot. Um, and then about um, staying humble and listening. I think when we get to certain points, you know, in our careers as heritage professionals and we are working for the city or for a museum, we get used to telling and talking so much. And a lot of inclusion is not talking, listening to other people. Um, listening to the way they're going to tell stories, the way that they perceive, you know, their own history and culture. So um, great, great points. Um, we did have a question here from Facebook from Jennifer Ott. Can you recommend any readings around how to think about inclusion as a broader concept and how to define what success will look like? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, off the top of my head, uh, I can't, um, 
what I can do is spend a little bit of time after this is over and I can compile a list and I can send that to Lauren um, and or share that directly through Facebook um, to respond to that because there is a very broad universe of that. Um, and I think it really will depend. I have to think a little bit more carefully about uh, because a lot of the resources that I use obviously are more specific to museums, but there are some things that I can share that are a little bit more, that would apply a little bit more broadly. Um, Jay, Stephen, do you guys have any suggestions? For me, um, a book that was really influential early in my career that led me to preservation was Power, uh, Power Place. And it was about um, preserving Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. Hmm. And so I think that um, that kind of changed the trajectory of my career. So I don't know if you guys have suggestions or thoughts on that. Um, you know, I'll be frank that I, I don't, a lot of my work is as a consultant for preservation, uh, for evaluating buildings and interpreting the standards. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of struggling right now to think of, of books that kind of speak directly to that. But, you know, some of the things that I found particularly helpful are um, some of the studies that are being put out by uh, groups like Beyond Integrity through For Culture and just, you know, some of the case studies and just kind of asking those questions. You know, I really appreciate what Jackie, what you're saying about, again, also being flexible and listening and kind of just understanding what our role is in this process and kind of, you know, understanding that where, how to listen to different perspectives, how to develop that context, I think is really, really important. And, you know, I think that some of those, the resources and, uh, that are stemming out of that and kind of the discussions that are coming out of that are really helpful in just broadening, uh, you know, as you said, it's a process in a way here. And we're, we're working towards kind of understanding the, uh, 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 these ideas a little bit further. So, you know, I, I, I found those particularly helpful, some of the uh, groups like Beyond Integrity. That's a, that's a great point, Stephen. And I've had the privilege of being able to um, work with Beyond Integrity and attend some of their working group meetings. And um, Manish Chalana, who's an, a professor at the University of Washington, is in the chat throwing out some ideas. So um, we'll be sure to write those down and share those out maybe through Facebook um, so that that can be um, distributed to that audience as well. Um, and I don't have any specific recommendations either, but I, I did want to say that I really appreciated um, Jackie's comments about this process being iterative. And um, as a group that has is um, receiving funding and support from Tacoma Creates, um, Historic Tacoma has been undergoing some um, workshops and um, some inclusion training with uh, a group called Coleman and Associates, I imagine Many other folks in the cultural sector are, <laughs> are going through that as well here in Tacoma. And they've, they've really highlighted that um, concept as well, um, as far as, um, you know, you're not gonna do it perfectly all the first time and it, you can't solve all the problems, you know, in the first few months of, of this work, that it's an ongoing process as audiences change, as the world changes, history changes. That it's just kind of a it's it's a, it's more of an attitude than sort of something that you check off a list or accomplish after um, a period of time. So we do have some more comments. Um, so Manish, he is a professor at uh, UW 
And he's also on the Beyond Integrity Task Force. Um, I was on that with him. He recommends Erica of Rami's work, which engages topic of social inclusion. Um, I also do. Uh, Erica of Rami was my thesis advisor at Columbia, and she works with the World Monuments Fund, so she's got some great stuff. Um, he also says Gail Dubrow's work on women and LGBTQ history. Um, so we've got some good things happening here in the chat and a few more questions coming in. One is from Amy Lambert. Any advice for white historians working on black histories in general and working with community members who may be resistant to historic designation or exploitation? Mm -hmm. uh, that is a real question. And I think that um, that goes back to thinking about ways to build trust. Um, I have worked on several projects where um, there is a real fear within Black communities of people taking our stuff and misinterpreting it or exploiting it and making a profit and not channeling any of those funds back to us. So I think understanding, again, investigating the context, like why is that? why is there resistance? Why has there historically been not a lot of uh, communication or interaction with a particular community? And then figuring out ways to repair that trust. Um, one of the things that I think is very valuable is finding ways to show up without expecting anything. Um, are there African-American heritage groups, genealogy groups uh, that you could do they have meetings can you that that are open to the public that you can just start showing up at and again not saying anything but listening and understanding what what is currently top of mind for that community what are people working on what are people concerned about and then thinking about ways that you either as an individual or if you're a part of a larger organization how can you support that work um, do you have access to space? Is this a group that needs space to meet? Do you have technological experience that you can offer? Um, are there ways that you can be of service to that group again without expecting anything in return? And know that this is going to be a long process, right? Like you're not going to just magically in two months or six months or a year uh, suddenly become BFF with folks and things are going to be great. Like know that you're, you really have to commit to investing that time because the longer that you can commit and show up for a community, the more they're gonna start thinking to themselves, oh, hey, yeah, that person keeps coming to that meeting. Um, maybe they're legit. Maybe they really do have some of our interests in mind. Maybe it is worth our time to, to talk to them or have a conversation. So I think the more that you can be present, the more that you can show up and the more that you can offer whatever you have access to um, as a skill, as a service, um, in, in a way to address whatever that community needs, um, that's going to come back to you at some point. That was a really, really great answer. I think um, so important. I've worked in a lot of communities and I think the idea that you're trying to take something mm -hmm. is probably the number one boundary to working you know, with organizations in almost all communities. Um, of color just because of our history in America. And so I think building that trust through, you know, paying your speakers, paying your people of color who are consultants and workers and whatever to participate, offering those resources um, is really so important. And I think also um, partnering with them. 
So not just, hey, what can you give me so I can make an exhibit on Black history, but what, how can we help you tell the story that you want to tell? Um, how can we help give a voice to the people that you want to give a voice to? Um, I think that's really important. So thank you for, for phrasing that. Um, we have, Jay, um, I know you have worked with the, um, the Latino contact statement uh, in Seattle. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, and in fact, we've, um, the Washington Trust has a program, a website called Revisiting Washington, and it's actually kind of an, <laughs> broadly speaking, it's a very interesting project because it's based on um, Revisiting Washington, the Evergreen, A Guide to the Evergreen State, which was a book published in, I, th I think, 40 or 41 um, as a Works Progress Administration um, uh project that you know the government funded um, in the depression and it records basically a snapshot in Washington's history along all these um, small highways essentially it was before the interstate system came through and a few years ago we translated that into a website interactive mapping uh, website with tours and maps and different things and um, we did try a, li a little bit to update the information but just with the size of that project and the capacity of actually building the website and translating the information into the digital space, um, we did not have a lot of um, inclusive stories when it first launched. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do is partner with organizations um, and add some of that information. So we've done a project with um, Japanese Americans on Bashan. Um, we're, we're starting to work with um, the Wing Luke to do another similar project in Seattle, uh, Latino heritage in both King County and out in Yakima. And then we're working with um, the Black Heritage Society as well to get some information um, uh, from the Black community in the Central District. So it's been super exciting. And it's also great because it's, basically a platform that we have have at our disposal and we can offer it to groups to, to help tell some of their stories um, and it's and it doesn't necessarily have to be us doing the telling it's just a tool um, that we were privileged to be able to create through public funding, frankly. And so being able to offer that to other groups and being able to bring those stories in is, is really great. I mean, obviously we have a long way to go, um, but that has resulted in some some really great information and some, and some partnerships. Yeah, I actually worked with the Black Heritage Society on the Central District Project. Fabulous, yes. Super fun and I'm so excited about it. It's gonna be so great. It's um, awesome, and uh, we were gonna obviously launch it this year, and things just yep haywire. So <laughs> hopefully, early next year. It's very close. We're um, we're kind of trying to make some adjustments to the functionality of the website to fit the cool format that BHS put all the information in. So, Jackie, I I was thinking of a question for you. You mentioned um, you you've worked in preservation, um, and when you're talking about listening and um and trust i think one of the barriers to inclusion and preservation is differing priorities mm -hmm. and differing ways of recording and appreciating history mm -hmm. and this is something we ran into very much um, as lauren was mentioning with the latino work that we did for visiting washington was 
that a lot of the sites related to histories of underrepresented communities are either non-existent because they were removed or never really intended to be all that all that permanent, um, or they don't sort of measure up to um, architectural, you know, expectations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think definitely has been a topic of preservation in the last five to 10 years. Um, and I think <laughs> I attended the National Trust Conference um, a few months back and there was a session about integrity and it felt like there, nobody has an answer. And so I was wondering if you had had some thoughts about that. I mean, obviously I'm not asking you for, to solve this very big, <laughs> big problem in um, historic registers and that style of recognizing history. But I just wondered if you had any perspectives on that um, and some ways we could do better with the tools we have or change the tools that we have. Um, some thoughts along those lines. I think one of the things that would be really helpful is uh, making the process more transparent and, and reaching out to people and inviting them to just help them understand like what is the preservation process, explaining what the language means, kind of helping people navigate the system, like number one. Um, before we even get to the point of, of, of loss or something not being there, if that's a possibility. Um, and then I think there just needs to be, and I don't, again, I don't really have a, a good answer either, but just thinking a little bit more creatively about what can we do. Um, and I think there, and, and reaching out to people who may not necessarily be top of mind when you're doing preservation work because there are community organizations that are preserving stories and they're preserving histories but they may not be necessarily who you would think to tap into first. Mm -hmm. So thinking a little bit out of the box about who should we talk to, who should we reach out to, um, and then thinking about ways to co-design or co-create um, preservation efforts around those stories because, um, you know, there there is only so much money to go around a lot of times. There's only so many grants in a cycle that can be um, awarded. Uh, there's only so many uh, applications you can review for uh, registering a historic place. Uh, but how, how can we um, kind of start to build energy around those stories in, in other ways? And I think just kind of tapping into organizations, groups, again, genealogy groups are really great. Um, there are lots of uh, genealogy groups, particularly for black communities, but lots of other communities are getting into genealogy. Um, and I've seen that happen in other cities. Um, Austin, Texas has been working with um, a lot of their genealogical organizations um, to, to start to map out like what are some of these places within the city that we were unaware of or haven't really been given a lot of attention and how can we think creatively about um, if not preserving the place, preserving the story because that's always gonna be there, we hope. <laughs> um, yeah. But really there, there are lots great. of ways to do that. I think that's great. You, I think you really have to just start with the story uh, for a lot of these other communities because that's where um, 
you know, that's where they're keeping all of their, their you know, their heritage and their story and their contacts and their culture. Um, and I think when you're working with immigrant communities and you approach them right away with, hey, sign up to register on national list, that raises some red flag that they don't want to do uh, government control, all those things. And we know that that's not what we're doing with historic preservation. I think you really need to build that trust and understand where they're coming from first. Uh, we've got another question from Kathleen Brooker. Um, Jackie, what brought you to Washington? What do you observe as the biggest missing stories in our preservation world? And she recommends Place, Race, and Story by Ned Kaufman for people who oh, want to read further reading. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the resource sharing. Um, honestly, <laughs> uh, this is going to sound like kind of a cop-out answer, but um, I had only been to Seattle once before I moved here. Um, New York City became a very hard place to live. Um, and I think I've always had a desire to live on the West Coast. Um, and my spouse works in tech and Seattle just kind of made sense, even though, again, neither of us spent a ton of time here. Um, it turns out it's really great. Um, this this mostly lifelong East Coaster uh, is feeling pretty good about being here. Um, I also hate winter and snow. And even though we've had our fair share of snow in the last couple of winters here, it is nothing like the several feet of snow the East Coast is getting hit with right now. Uh, so I'm very glad to not be in that anymore. Uh, I love the rain is fine, the gray is fine. Um, December and January are kind of tricky, but I'll take it any day over having to shovel snow or slip around on ice. Um, and what's missing? Um, I think as an East Coaster, I, I, what, I, what I love and what I wish there was more energy being put into is that um, the, the, believe it or not, the acknowledgement of indigenous communities is like vastly greater here than um, anywhere that I've spent any time, by which I mean, like, I'm now aware that there are living, breathing Indigenous people, whereas, you know, I grew up going to predominantly white elementary school and high schools where Indigenous history was taught as if Indigenous people were no longer with us, and now living in a place where they're very vibrant, very active, uh, very much alive and well and, and um, engaged Indigenous communities here, I think that this part of the world has a huge opportunity to really think about um, how we let those indigenous communities really lead us and think about um, how we reframe our stories about our relationships to each other, how we reframe our stories about our relationships to place and space. Um, and I think there's a really big opportunity to start focusing some energy towards that because um, I'm, I'm so moved and I'm so joyful. And I'm so happy that I have been able to um, experience that as someone who's never experienced that prior, really prior to moving here. Um, and so I think that's an opportunity, um, particular on so many levels, not just preservation, right? But like climate change, <laughs> um, gentrification, like there's so many, you name it, you know, food sovereignty, right? There's so many things in which I think there's an opportunity to elevate Indigenous communities and and um, give them resources and give them energy and give them platforms um, so that they can help us um, 
basically, you know, move in a better direction and, and get into a better relationship with the earth and with our uh, non-human uh, neighbors. So um, I think that's really a big thing. And I think also um, another thing that is maybe not missing, but uh, maybe deserves a little bit more space um, is thinking about how the Asian American community has contributed and shaped this part of the world. Again, something that's not um, as prevalent um, where I come from on the East Coast. So um, these are things to me that, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to, to do that. And in a way that uh, really acknowledges some of the harms that have been done um, specifically to Asian American communities. Um, and in a way that that allows um, those communities to really um, re reframe some of those relationships and some of those stories. Absolutely, I think that that's um, a really exciting development that I've seen just in the last ten years living here of just being more open and acknowledging uh, in indigenous communities. And um, at the Washington Trust, something we're really trying to work on too, we're kicking off the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area uh, next year and tribal stories, canoe, canoe cultures is one of the big kind of um, themes that we wanna make sure gets um, recognized uh, in that. And I think that's a really wonderful opportunity um, to, to bring those stories into the typical sort of Northwest maritime <laughs> kind of theme that you see in Port Townsend, which is also a wonderful, exciting um, story, but is, is only a small part of the story of this area. So can we take a moment to celebrate that uh, our, our president-elect just nominated the first female Native American Secretary of the Interior? I mean, I feel like that is a historic <laughs> moment. I'm so excited to see Definitely. where that's gonna lead. That's awesome. Such yeah. great news today. And I fully agree that New York is a hard place to live. That is why I left as well. Oh my goodness. I don't know how people do it. <laughs> they earn that title, New Yorker. Um, yeah. We do have another question. This is probably more for our historic Tacoma board members. Um, has anyone talked about what's going on with the Asbury House? And can you give us a little bit of a context and update on that for those of those who are listening who don't? Yeah, um, I, I can start with that. And Steve, you can let me know if I miss anything, yeah. but basically um, Dr. Nettie Asbury is this incredible uh, figure in both civil rights and, um, and women's uh, suffrage uh, from the early part of the, the 20th century. And um, her house is here in Tacoma uh, where she taught music lessons. She was a, a PhD, she had a PhD in music. Um, so she was very well accomplished. I think she's one of the first um, African-American women to have earned a PhD, if not the first in the United States. I have to double check that fact. Um, but anyway, the, the house is owned um, by someone who is interested and willing to sell it to the right <laughs> to the right hands um, so that uh, that it can that it can be a cultural center and a, and a space to to represent her life. So um, there's a bunch of partners that have been working on this. Cirque Tacoma, the Washington Trust, Forterra, um, but the 
but the general plan is to be able to um, acquire the house and um, for the Tacoma Association of Colored Women's Clubs to own and operate and manage um, and tell her story. So um, we have basically just been supportive <laughs> over uh, at the Washington Trust, but um, one of our board members, uh, Marshall McClintock, has been one of the sort of key, uh, historic Tacoma, has been one of the kind of key um, communicators around all the uh, moving pieces and working with the CWC um, and the rest of the partners. And really awesome news over the last few days, um, Governor Inslee included, I believe it's 800,000 in, um, in his proposed budget today that, he, that was released officially today, um, basically to acquire the house. And um, I forget which department it's being put through, I think it might be DAP, um, but basically to help protect that history and tell that story. And the, the Colored Women's Club, uh, I certainly don't want to speak for them, but we had Mrs. Cynthia Tucker uh, do a presentation for us a couple months back on Nettie Asbury, and she um, is super excited. <laughs> she just loves the idea of, of bringing back the music room, and um, they have some of, of uh, Dr. Nettie Asbury's books and, and some of her other things that they would love to put back in her house. So there's a lot of work to do, um, not just to acquire the house, but obviously um, bring it up to a sort of make it a community space and um, do some rehabilitation work. It's seen some changes over the years, so there's going to be some rehabilitation there. Um, Steve, did I miss anything or is that oh. basically... And that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think you, yeah. you did a very full recap. And um, I uh, agree. That was the main thing is I thought was really exciting over the last couple of days is that, that additional budget um, in uh, the governor's budget to, to really take this to the next step, it sounds like. So I know a lot of work has been put into this by a lot of people. So it's quite exciting. Yeah. And I'm I'm sorry if I missed any other organizations. Um, I know there have been just so many people in Tacoma and across the state who are so excited about it um, and and just really everyone's on board and the governor got on board too and this amazing uh, funding opportunity uh, has arisen so I it seems like it's it's gonna work out and it's gonna move forward so three and cheers for the say, like <laughs> what I love about the Nettie Asbury house and the whole project is it's basically the culmination of everything that you were talking about Jackie <laughs> if we're giving you know it's giving the home back to the community to use for where they you know what they see a need for um, it's a partnership between all these different types of organizations, cultural organizations, land trust, the city, the Washington Trust. Um, so it was really, um, I think, a lesson in balancing all of these different types of um, needs and interests. Um, yeah, so I just like was just really excited to see it happen. Um, I think it's going to be a really exciting case study in the next year as we continue with this project. Um, let's see here. Are there any other questions from our audience? You know, I, I had a question for Jackie and the group slash thought. I, you know, it's like, I, I really agree with your point on um, the, you know, building trust and, and, and really that it's so critical and it's, you know, coming in often as a consultant when I'm working and we're trying to, we've developed historic context statements. I've worked on one for the uh, Latino historic context in Riverside, California. And, you know, it was, it's a real process and it's, it's often hard to accomplish when you've got budgets and you've got timelines and all these other things. And I certainly appreciate that you can't force people to become comfortable within a 
set timeline. And so, you know, I, I'm curious if, if you or anyone has thoughts on just, you know, obviously there's the almost like institutional relationships and how you kind of carry that forward beyond just a specific individual, you know, showing up at meetings or a specific group, but kind of carry that forward. And, you know, I, an example that I was attended a training recently for uh, city of San Francisco and they were asking for all their con consultants uh, uh, for a training on racial equity and kind of how the city is present uh, uh, approaching historic preservation and evaluation. And, you know, the, their historic preservation uh, commission had adopted a, an initiative in essence to kind of recognize what they have done, what they haven't done. And it's part of this process of continuing on and, you know, that certainly seems one avenue to take. And I'm just curious, again, if there's any other thoughts on kind of how to keep, develop that trust and, and kind of carry it past specific individuals and, and carry it past specific project timelines and, and just, you know, be able to really build on it in essence. So, so it's really effective in the long term. I think that's something I work a lot with for the city of Tacoma. And what's really important, I think, is to build that relationship before you have an ask. So really, yeah. um, you know, go to meetings, ask them what they need from you, uh, you know, really try to have a presence and let them have a presence in your organization and vice versa before you're like, I have this project and I need you guys to give me everything you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense because I can appreciate what you're, you're kind of putting people on the spot. And at that point, it's again, kind of perhaps rightfully so might be questioning what this means, what this is heading towards, why am I being asked now versus the more organic uh, relationship that you would develop earlier on. Yeah. Yeah, I would add that, um, you know, where are there opportunities where you're, you can kind of see your goals or visions aligning? Um, are there opportunities to kind of do things together um, part of like so many times people want to develop partnerships, but they're very extractive. And so how are you creating relationships and partnerships that are mutually beneficial? Um, and some of that might mean that you're leaning a little bit one way at the beginning. Um, you know, it may not, it's not necessarily about achieving kind of a perfect balance, but maybe in the beginning, you're saying, how can we be of service to you? Um, and as that relationship develops um, and that trust is built, then I think you have opportunities to say, well, who else should we talk to? Who, who else is out there that is not on our radar? Would you be willing to make that introduction? Would you be willing to connect us to whomever or whatever, whatever organization um, that might be a good partner or that might, maybe we have something to offer them that they don't currently have. Um, you know, I think it, it starts to trickle out. It's, it's a little bit like just networking in general, right? Like the stronger relationships you build, then it's like, it kind of will fan out from there. And I think if you become um, in, an individual or one organization's mind as like a trustworthy partner or someone who has has really committed, um, then it becomes like, okay, well, because I've had a good experience, I feel okay introducing you to other people or other community organizations to kind of help start bridging some of those gaps. So I think 
you know, recognizing the power of connection and understanding that, um, you know, being a good partner means that you may have opportunities down the road um, because you showed up and because you were a good partner. I think also um, giving up control. I think that's really hard when we are the lead organization on any types of project. When we did the Prairie Lion Trail project, um, we had our consultants work with the Puyallup Tribe Preservation Office and they um, had a historian, um, Dr. Danica Miller, who's also talked for us. And she wrote that entire context of the uh, Puyallup Tribe history and we did not edit it. You know, we didn't change it. We were like, <laughs> you put in there what you want to put. And I think Sometimes that's hard, especially for um, people or places or organizations that are afraid of touching on the negative. Like, well, this is supposed to be a positive project, so we don't want to talk about uh, racism or like, you know, anything that's awkward. And I think we just need to get over that part, you know, <laughs> be uncomfortable, go there, let go of that control, um, talk to people the way, communicate the way they're communicating on their level, you know, and uh and I think sometimes that's hard when we become professional because we're like, but writing in a certain way and like, you know, so. It's a great point. Yeah, I think particularly when working with museums, you know, there's, there's this desire to have this institutional voice and it doesn't always, you can have, there's a place for that, but I think if you're really wanting to honor a particular community or particular story, a particular voice, like, that needs to be present in whatever way it needs to be present. And I think as an organization or a museum or whatever, you have to acknowledge that and be okay with that. And that might take some legwork on your end to say, you know what, we're gonna, if we really truly wanna partner with this organization, we really truly wanna bring in um, this particular perspective, there may be some things there that we may not necessarily typically do or typically say, but this is authentic to that person, that community. And so we really need to be okay with that. We need to embrace that. Awesome. Any last questions, comments, thoughts? I mean, this discussion, I feel like I could go on all night. I know, right? <laughs> it's so fascinating to me. Um, and I know like a lot of people are following us on Facebook and uh, enjoying in the chat. So um, yeah, is there any kind of well, I just want to say thank you so much, Jackie. Uh, if you have resources, feel free to send them and we can post them. You can put them in the chat. We can put them on Facebook. Um, if other people have questions, feel free to hit us up on the many Facebooks of Tacoma Historic Preservation, <laughs> Historic Tacoma, Tacoma Historical Society, or email us at our offices. Um, uh, contact us. Otherwise, um, everybody have a good night and happy holidays. Um, Jackie, I hope we can work with you again. Um, as we continue to areas. So um, I hope you'll stay in touch and thank Absolutely. you everybody. Thank you everybody. Yeah, thank you. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs>